Hello, UniChurch. Um, today we have two Bible readings. The first is taken from Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And our second reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, They should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength of God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, Celeste. Well, we are uh, in the last week of our Faith for Exiles series. We've been exploring, kind of following along with a piece of global research of 18 to 35-year-olds who have been part of church. And we've been particularly exploring the five key traits which mark out resilient disciples of Jesus from among those young people who have been part of church. So let's do some little kind of revision time, see what we can remember from the last five weeks. The first week was intimacy with, be careful here, Jesus. Well done, intimacy with Jesus. Uh, The second week was cultural discernment. Well done, I thought no one was going to get this. Good job. Uh, So intimacy with Jesus, we focused on that trait particularly of uh, the the kind of personal sustaining faith that, um, that gives us the kind of stability, the kind of resilience for life in a difficult world to live for Jesus in. We looked at uh, how we might nurture not only the the kind of objective experience that we know, but also uh, the relational, ongoing, emotional experience of of connection with Jesus. Then we talked about cultural discernment, uh, the value of understanding the culture that we're in and being able to apply the knowledge of God's word and to find stability in God's people uh, as we we face and um, subvert the the powerful culture that's around us, whatever that might be, wherever we live. Uh, Then third, we looked at the trait of countercultural mission. Well done, that's right. So uh, we saw that resilient disciples among young young people across the world, they value sharing faith. Uh, They value um, mission to the ends of the earth, taking their part in God's plan uh, for all of the world. Fourth, who can remember what we had last week? 
vocational discipleship. Well done, Mary. Good job. Uh, so we, we thought about how resilient disciples, how young people following Jesus understand their work life, their whole vocational life, whatever that might be in the workplace as a student, as a parent, whatever it might be, as part of our life of discipleship, living integrated lives following Jesus where we don't put our faith in a box as part of our life and then have the rest of it, but where Jesus is integrated through all of our life. Uh, And tonight we're coming to our final traits. We're going to be talking about meaningful relationships. Meaningful relationships is, is the fifth, the final trait that this piece of research identified was common to resilient young disciples of Jesus all across the 26 nations of the study. Those five traits mark out resilient young followers of Jesus across Australia and Malaysia and Brazil and Kenya all across the world. They have the kind of faith which is genuinely transforming the kind of faith which can endure the the hostile and immersive environment of digital Babylon, that place we've been exploring through this series, the hybrid physical digital world that we live in and which is actively trying to draw us away from Jesus to be discipled to a different kingdom, to to live a different story. And so tonight we're exploring this final trait, meaningful relationships as we follow Jesus. Let me tell you about uh, one of the contexts where I'm, I'm blessed to enjoy meaningful relationships and, and how important that is in my life of faith. One of the most important resources that I have to, to nurture, to develop my own personal faith is a small a, a prayer group that I'm part of. There's four of us, four guys who meet together to pray. Across the time that we've been meeting to pray together to encourage one another, we've had people in our group go through cancer and other really significant health crises. Uh, We've had one person lose a baby. We've had someone else go through deep discouragement and and burnout in their role. We've had uh, siblings, close family members walk away from Jesus. We've had people changing jobs, changing churches, people going through marriage struggles. And we've had lots of joys as well, lots of our time together, lots of meals together, holidays together, babies born, new ministries, growth in faith, lots of things that we've celebrated together as well as mourned together. That, that group, that, that little expression of, of meaningful relationship has been one of the most significant and, and stabilising and encouraging resources that I have had and continue to have in my own life of faith. Uh, and it's the kind of relationship that we want to think about tonight. How do we develop those kind of relationships around us? How can we enjoy the kind of benefits, the blessings that I have enjoyed in that group? First, we're going to think about the two big cultural currents that block us from it. The two big things that are across the world for 18 to 35-year-olds which work against meaningful relationships And then we'll think about what the gospel, what scripture, what the research as well offers us uh, as we think about how to endure through those currents. So Faith for Exiles identifies these two key cultural currents which work against meaningful relationships among young disciples of Jesus. Isolation and mistrust. Those are the two big kind of meta 
currents working against us as we try to form, to forge meaningful relationships. Isolation and mistrust. So first, isolation. Now we experience life's highest highs and life's lowest lows in the context of relationships, right? Relationships are incredibly important to us as human beings. Yet despite kind of never before seen connectedness that young people have across the world today, our generation's gripped by an epidemic of loneliness. And that's the same in Australia as it is in in China, in Japan, in Europe, in North and South America, all over the world. Half of Australian young people feel lonely. In Japan, there are more than half a million people under 40 who haven't left the house or interacted with anyone for more than six months. Isolation is a deep cultural current that works against meaningful relationships. And now, we've, we've gone on at length, right, about the effect that the digital world, that our hyper-connected online lives have on our relationships, how those lives make us lonely. We've substituted real-life, in-person connection for online connection. And so we get pushed back behind our devices rather than face-to-face with each other. We end up hyper-connected to one another, but lonely. But let's think a little bit tonight about the kind of community that we can form online, right? Because we can. I'm sure lots of us in the room use online resources to, to grow, to maintain relationships. So here's a little bit about how online community works, how it's different to in-person relationship and community, right? Online, we tend to build relationships with people through shared interests, shared things that we do together, games that we play together, YouTube genres that we watch together, uh, forums that we participate in together. If you are into early 20th century Bolivian film, is anyone here into that? No, okay, well, if you were, then you would be able to find a forum for that, I'm sure. I haven't checked, but there probably is a forum somewhere for it. If your thing is competitive chili eating, anyone here into that? No? Again, that would be fine. You can go on the forums, you can read the blogs with people and comment on them, you can watch the YouTube channels, you can get in the right video calls and chat rooms. But imagine if we didn't have the internet. Imagine if we didn't have all those online contexts where you could pursue relationships through your shared interests with people. Could you foster your hobby for early 20th century Bolivian film or competitive chili eating? It would be much harder, wouldn't it? So it's great. It's great that we can pursue interests with people online. That's a wonderful thing. That's a blessing. We can find interesting people, interesting things to connect with people over online. But kind of trace, trace the line, trace the logic with me to what that creates, what that does to us on a, on a meta kind of level. The internet facilitates ever more and more kind of homogenous communities of people, narrow communities of people based around their interests, right? 
Mary can read about Jane Austen with people from around the world. Josh can play chess with other grandmasters from Russia somewhere. People can go into their little interest-shaped kind of boxes with people from all around the world and become increasingly isolated in those little communities. And if you're racist, you can find sympathetic blogs, YouTube channels, forums. If you fantasise about committing violent acts, you can find a community for that online. Of course, for most of us, it's not that extreme, not that obviously destructive, but social media works to push us into these kind of niche communities and sometimes unhealthy communities for us because our attention online, the way the algorithms work is they push us into more and more extreme content because that's what we linger over, that's what we click on, that's what we view. That's how online community works. There's great things about it, but on a meta level, there's some big problems with it. How then does, does physical, in-person, relationally interwoven community work differently to that? How does a church work? You might not be able to find someone who shares your hobbies, right? Josh can't find anyone here who can match him in a game of chess. <laughs> but it does mean that you can learn about other people's hobbies and they'll learn about yours and they'll learn about you and you about them and it means that that person who might have some unhealthy or violent tendencies are enmeshed, embedded in a community of people, a diverse community who will serve them and care for them and who they will serve. Relationships will grow. They'll have people around them who can see unhealthy habits in them, who can call those out, who can help them work through those things. See, isolation fostered by the way we relate to people online retreats us into smaller and smaller subcultures and that's a threat to meaningful community. It isolates us from people, especially from people who are different to us. Isolation is a big threat, a big challenge to the kind of meaningful relationships that we need to endure as followers of Jesus. And the second big threat, the second big challenge is mistrust. We, we have mistrust everywhere around us in our culture, in our society, right? I think most obviously we see this in the disconnection and the, the, the mistrust between generations. Right? You, you throw around the phrase, okay, boomer, all the time, right? We have all kinds of phrases like this. In week one of this series... I, I used the word which the, the research, the book, uses to refer to 18 to 35-year-olds, the word millennials, and I got the most pushback I have ever got for anything I've ever said in a sermon. The number of people who came up to me and insisted, we're not millennials, millennials this, millennials that, da-da-da-da-da. People were really like, I mean, they were being funny, but like worked up about being identified in that generational group and not wanting to be. Unlike almost any other generation in history and unlike cultures that a lot of us have grown up in outside of the Western world who are taught to value the wisdom of age, respect elders, Western kids and increasingly kids across the world who grow up in that digital Babylon space are formed to view 
older generations with, with mistrust, with derision, rather than with trust and respect. Right? We grew up watching that whole genre, the whole Hunger Games kind of genre of movies, right? where the grown-ups have ruined the world and the kids have to fix it, have to put things right. And so the generations, they weaponise humour to, uh, to belittle one another, to extend, to develop that mistrust. Right? She's such a Karen. Right? I read this article during the week about the types and subtypes of Karens. There's this whole like, field about that word now. Or an older person might say, kids these days are a bunch of snowflakes. Right? We, we use this weaponised humour and it, it separates us from each other. It develops mistrust between the generations. But what, what, a, what an impoverished way of looking at the world. What do we miss out on when that's the way we look at the world? Here's a line from the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's a series of fictional letters that he writes between an older, more senior demon and a younger demon as the older trains the younger. And here's what the older demon writes to the younger. He says, It is most important thus to cut every generation off from all others. For where learning makes a free commerce, that is, it moves between the ages, there is always the danger that the characteristic errors of one may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. It's dangerous for us to be separated from the generations around us. It's dangerous for us to continue in that current, that pattern of mistrust between people in our culture. We need intergenerational, we need diverse relationships to thrive as resilient disciples of Jesus. And now the, the need for intergenerational relationships, that's a challenge for us at UniChurch, right? This is tricky for us as a congregation that's focused on, on reaching and serving students, young adults. As we thought a moment ago right, about how the internet pushes us into increasingly homogenous units, our congregation, at least in terms of age, is fairly homogenous, more than most church congregations are. So what might we do about that? How might we respond to that? I often have this conversation, people who feel the need for more intergenerational relationships around them, who want to relate to older and younger believers. Well, a, f- a few thoughts. We, we do have a growing and, and really strong culture of discipling one another in our congregation, older to younger, even at UniChurch, within the kind of age range that most of us live in. Let me encourage you, if you're older, if you might not feel it, but you realise you're towards the older end of people at UniChurch, then why don't you respond to that opportunity, that, that responsibility for you to invest in people who are younger than you? And if you're at the younger end of us at UniChurch, why not look to try to get alongside, learn from people in our community who are that little bit older, maybe just three, four, five years older than you who can encourage you and help you grow in faith. We're also part of a wider community at St Jude's. We're one of six congregations in our church. And as time goes on, as the years go on, we're we're really pleased that people are integrating themselves into the life of the wider church more and more and enjoying the benefits that come from that. Three years ago, there were no uni church youth leaders. 
Now, most of the youth leaders at St. Jude's are from UniChurch. Three years ago, there were no kids leaders from UniChurch. Now, a lot of the kids leaders here on a Sunday morning come from UniChurch. Let me encourage you as well, if you're in CU, to, to look at the staff workers as another potential resource for those intergenerational relationships, people ahead of you in the Christian life who can encourage you and spur you on. And though our diversity is narrow in terms of our age range, we're very diverse in other ways. And that's a wonderful richness as well to encourage us and grow us in faith. Be encouraged, be built up by investing in relationships with people outside of your cultural group who grew up in a different country to you, whose heart language is not the same as your heart language. That's a wonderful opportunity to grow in faith together through the kind of diversity that we do enjoy in our congregation. In Digital Babylon, the, the, the mistrust between generations and mistrust of authorities as well, combined with that social isolation that we saw, leaves our culture at the same time hyper-connected and hyper-disconnected. And it's deeply unsatisfying. So, as we live out our faith in Jesus in digital Babylon, in this hybrid, physical, digital world. We face these strong currents of isolation and mistrust. They come at us and they make meaningful relationships hard. They're deeply undermining to a thriving faith, right? What does it take then to to thrive in the middle of all that? Well, according to the research in Faith for Exiles, which as we've seen, our, what, what is observed in the world is lining up with the truths of God's word. It, it takes meaningful relationships, investing in meaningful relationships to overcome those currents that threaten our faith. What the Bible calls fellowship, right, with, with one another. And meaningful relationships, based, based on the research, here's how they define them. Are relationships in which we are devoted to fellow believers that we want to be around and want to become like. Relationships in which we are devoted to fellow believers we want to be around and want to become like. Not just with people who are like us. Right? We've seen, seen the dangers of that. And that's what Digital Babylon wants for us, to push us into those increasingly isolated echo chamber relationships. We don't want that, but we want relationships in which we are devoted to fellow believers who we want to be around and want to become like. And of course, the best example, the the, the truest, fullest example of the kind of flourishing human relationships that we need is Jesus himself, right? Jesus was never not in relationship in, in eternity, in the Godhead, Jesus is in relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And he's born into a human family. He gathers friends around himself. His ministry is always about serving people. And he calls us to do the same. 
hear Jesus' words in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the one another love of Jesus' followers in his own words there that mark them as his. Why? Because that's what he's like. He's the one who models a truly flourishing humanity, who models life deeply woven into a web of relationships in deep fellowship with others. And of course, what is the gospel after all, if not a story of broken relationships being restored? Jesus' death and resurrection restores relationship. Right On the cross, the one in perfect relationship with God and with other people, he is betrayed to his death by one friend, abandoned by his other friends, he's spat on, he's humiliated by strangers and he's hung up on a cross alone. Jesus experiences a loneliness deeper than any other, an isolation deeper than any other. Why? So that you and I can be brought back from our relational separation from God, back into relationship with him. We are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. He carries us through fire to freedom and salvation and fellowship with God and one another forever. When God saves us, when he restores us from lonely separation from him back into high quality, meaningful relationship with him, he brings us into a new kind of relationship with each other then. Psalm 68 says, God sets the lonely in families. That's what he does for each of us when we're saved. To to continue as thriving and resilient disciples of Jesus, we must forge meaningful relationships with one another, like Jesus did. In Faith for Exiles, 82% 82 of resilient disciples strongly agree that they're connected to a community of Christians, compared to only 33% of habitual churchgoers and just 7% of nomads. That's people who identify as Christian but but have walked away from church. The top relational predictors of resilient discipleship are these statements. I feel connected to a community of Christians. The church is a place where I feel I belong and I feel loved and valued in my church. The young disciple who looks out across their congregation and thinks, these are my people, I belong with them, is the one who is most likely to look up and say, you are my God, I belong with you. Friends, these these people around you are the people of God. Each one of them was chosen before the creation of the world to be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus, to be brought into God's family. God chose them to be your brothers and sisters 
in Christ. He chose them to be your great encouragement and joy, your crown. Don't see them, don't see this as anything less than that. Celeste read for us Acts chapter 2, a description of the very first church. If you're in one of our small groups, we studied this passage just a couple of weeks ago, right? That group of people, they got this truth. Have a look at it there. It's it's a description of radical, life-giving, transformational, God-glorifying, revival-bringing community which God calls his people into. They share everything together. They orient their lives around Jesus together. And what's the word that the passage uses for this kind of high-quality, meaningful relationship? Verse 42, fellowship. That's the kind of Christian jargon word for meaningful relationship. If you're a Christian, then first you have fellowship with God himself through Jesus. Because Jesus has made you right with God, you have deep and true, you have meaningful relationship with God. He shares himself into community with you as the Holy Spirit lives in you. And then once you have that fellowship with God, you have fellowship with other Christians as well. You and me and every other Christian, we share the same cause, the same life orientation, right? To glorify God, to be witnesses to Jesus. Francis Schaeffer wrote, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. I wonder if you've had the experience that I have where friends who aren't followers of Jesus, who don't believe or don't know the gospel, have a particular perception of, of church, of the Christian message that they pick up through, through media, through the online world, all kinds of ways. But if your friends are like mine, then when they actually see what church is like and what Christians are like, that perception changes or is destabilised. The way that we live together is, is an apologetic to the world of the goodness of the gospel and its truth. One pastor, Jeremy Treat, he writes, Disciple making is a community project. It may take a village to raise a child, but it takes a church to make a disciple. It's easy to say all this, right? Maybe harder to do it. Especially if it doesn't come naturally to you to, to make friends and forge those kind of meaningful relationships. Basically, if you're not Caitlin, right? Some of us, like Caitlin, do this instinctively. It's awesome. For the rest of us, here are four steps, four suggestions to forging meaningful relationships with people. Get ready. Meaningful relationships don't happen by accident. So get ready. Make plans. Think about it. Think about who you might pursue and develop fellowship with and how you might do that. Faith Exiles says this, there are all sorts of landmines on the way to relational wellness. So we can't casually spend our weeks and months in digital Babylon 
in the midst of crushing isolation and systemic mistrust and hope to come out with meaningful relationships. We must be intentional about our goals. Hebrews 10 urges us to consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. To consider, to think about it, to, to plan it, to get ready. One of the key findings in the research is the importance of seeking specific relational outcomes for ourselves and for each other. We should seek to surround ourselves with Christians who we saw before we like and want to be like in a a diverse network of believers who are different to us in all kinds of ways, in, in culture, in age, in gender. Be intentional about seeking those outcomes, right? Number one, get ready. Number two, go first. Here's the scary bit, especially for the introverts among us, but it's important for all of us. Go first. Take initiative. I have this conversation with people all the time where someone, lots of you, say, I would love to have a mentor, but I don't know who to ask or how to ask them. Can you help me? And I I tell people, what the advice that I give to people is identify a Christian ahead of you in the Christian life who you want to be like and ask them. And if they say no, then find the next person ahead of you in the Christian life who you want to be like and ask them. If they say no, just keep working your way down the list until someone says yes. No one's ever embarrassed or, or awkward about being asked to mentor someone. Sometimes people feel like it's like asking someone out on a date or something. They get all kind of about it and feel weird about asking someone to be their mentor. But put yourself in that person's shoes. They're going to be nothing but pleased and encouraged, maybe a bit flattered by that, right? And even if, for whatever reason, they need to say no, uh, they'll probably help you find someone else who can do that for you. Or maybe you would love to have more Christian friends around you, peers. Can I urge you, go first. Take initiative. Just ask them if they want to catch up sometime. Spend some time together. Get to know each other better and encourage one another. Or here's here's a great way that maybe feels slightly less kind of one-on-one daunting. Ask two people if they'd be interested in forming a prayer triplet together kind of disperses your your own awkwardness about asking people to do something, right? Triplets are an amazing form, an amazing group for nurturing the kind of meaningful relationships that we need so badly. You could start with the people of your gender in your small group, or if that doesn't work, ask other people. If that's something you want to do and, and you don't know how to do it, come and ask me. I'd love to help you do that. So get ready. Go first. And then give time. Give time. You can't develop the kind of meaningful relationships that are so important for our faith unless you spend time with someone in person. Lots of us here at UniChurch are performers. We've got people studying violin, ballet, piano, a couple of trombones, 112 French horns... (laughs) A couple of musical theatre students. Or for you guys, 
and for the rest of us who maybe played in high school bands or performed in musicals or, or whatever, have you ever thought about what it is that makes that experience so relationally powerful? Do you remember that experience? You get to the end of the performance or the musical or whatever it was, and everyone's like so intensely connected with each other. And this, I love you guys. This has been the best thing in my life. Let's keep in touch forever. Let's have reunions every year until we die. People <laughs> feel so connected to each other by doing those things together, right? Because of the time that they've spent together, the shared cause, the sh shared focus that they've had together as they spend that time with one another. And that's, that's what we have on offer as, as God's people, as his children together. You can express, you can develop meaningful relationships by committing time to people around you. Costly time that you could have spent in other ways, but you choose to invest in one another. So get ready, go first, give time, finally get real. Get real with each other. Be honest, be vulnerable. Don't just leave conversations at the surface level because what, like, what's the point in that? For, for another quote from Faith for Exiles. One of the ways to break down walls of mistrust and isolation is to cultivate vulnerability, or to interact with others without wearing masks or putting on pretenses. I don't think that's talking about COVID masks, so you're all right, Tim, that's fine. If we want our relationships to have genuine sanctifying outcomes, to be discipling relationships, not just people that we enjoy hanging out with, then the call is to get real with one another. Get ready, go first, give time, get real. You do those things with other believers, people who are different to you as well as people who are similar to you, and you'll build the kind of network of meaningful relationships which will sustain resilient and thriving faith. Well, we, we started this series with Daniel, maybe you remember, a young disciple from ancient Israel carried off to the faraway hostile kingdom of Babylon. He was forced to learn how to live out his faith in Yahweh amid overwhelming pressure to conform and compromise his faith. And he did. He innovated. He thrived. And God used his thriving and resilient faith to influence kings and nations around him. But Daniel didn't do that alone. When he persuaded the king's official to feed him vegetables and water instead of being seduced by the king's banquet, he did it with three other resilient young disciples, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Together, they resisted the, the seductive, the creeping power of Babylon. Together, they were blessed by God with knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Together, they talked with the king and demonstrated that God-given wisdom which impressed the king so much he made them advisors and rulers better than all the rest. Together, they served and even blessed that hostile kingdom that they lived in. Somehow, even enslaved in exile, fulfilling God's purpose and promise for his people to be a blessing to the nations. 
And together, they were willing to suffer. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were thrown together into the blazing furnace when they refused to bow down in worship to the king, saved by an angelic fourth figure with them. And as as we look ahead at the next 50 years of our lives, we've got to be real. There will be challenges. There will be opposition. There will be seductive pressure from digital Babylon attempting to draw us away from Jesus. We're not going to be thrown in a fiery furnace or thrown in a pit of lions, right? And there are, there are many believers who have and do live under far more intense pressure than us. But if we don't develop the kind of thriving and resilient faith which can endure trials, we will not last. But if we do, if we do develop the kind of thriving and resilient faith which marked out Daniel and his friends, then we don't need to look at the future with fear. We can look forward to the future with hope and expectation for God to renew his church and reach the world through us. Why don't I pray that we would live that thriving and resilient faith and that God would do that work through us. Would you pray with me? God, make each of us, like Daniel, thriving and resilient disciples of Jesus. And make us, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, people who live that life together. Use us to renew your church, to change the world, to bring glory to your name. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.